0: This episode is brought to you by Quarter. With Quarter, you get frictionless access to conference calls, investor presentations, transcripts, and earnings reports from markets all around the world straight to your pocket for free. Their main mission is to create a completely new bridge between companies and shareholders, and really to reinvent investor relations as we know it. You can try out Quarter today by typing in Q-U-A-R-T-R in your app store of choice. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R, or simply click the link in the show notes. And there's five key points to remember about quarter. One, quarter is completely free. Two, they include companies from over 16 markets today and plan to add more over time. Three, they easily allow new companies on their platform by simply requesting the ticker of the company and they'll get back to you instantly. Four, users can now leave reactions while listening to calls to make their voices heard. And five, again, it's free and I only back products that I believe in and products that I use every single day. Quarter is an everyday part of my process and I wouldn't live without it. That's Q-U-A-R-T-R. Try it out today. Before we dive into today's conversation, I want to talk to you about MIT Investment Management Company, also known as Matimco, the investment office of MIT. Each year, Matimco invests with a handful of new emerging managers who it believes can earn exceptional long-term returns in support of MIT's mission. In order to help the emerging manager community more broadly, they created EmergingManagers.org, a website for emerging manager stock pickers. For those looking to start a stock picking fund or those just looking to learn about how others have done it, I highly recommend this site. You'll find essays and interviews by successful emerging managers, service providers used by MIT's own fund managers, essays Matimko has written for emerging stock pickers, and more. Matimco also occasionally and opportunistically hires new members for their investment team. To view the job description, please visit matimco.org/global-investor. That's m-i-t-i-m-c-o.org/global-investor. The Matimco team spends their time learning about great businesses and investments, working with exceptional investors around the world in order to support generations of MIT innovators. I'm also excited to announce Tegas. Tegas has the world's largest collection of instantly available interviews on all the public and private companies you care about. All you have to do is log in and type in a stock ticker or a keyword. For example, if you're interested in gaming stocks, you can type in RBLX for Roblox, or type in the keyword metaverse and instantly read hundreds of calls on the company and industry. Tegas actually makes primary research fun and effortless too. Instead of weeks and months, you can learn a new industry or company in hours and all from those that know it best. Now I only sponsor products that I use every day, and Tegas is no exception. Since joining, I spend nearly all my time reading Tegas calls on existing companies and new ideas into my portfolio, and I know you will too. So if you're interested, head on over to tegas.co forward slash valuehive for a free trial to see for yourself. Again, that's tegas.co forward slash valuehive. Hey guys, it's Brandon with the Macro Ops Value Hive podcast. I've got Eugene Ung here. Uh, he is the founder of Vision Capital, which invests really from pre-seed all the way to public markets. Uh, so we're going to discuss a lot of crossover investing, psychology, um, investment philosophy, and six traits that uh Eugene looks for in new investments as well as just this idea of long termism and 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 how he thinks about the long term versus selling and what to do in the intermediate so it's going to be it's going to be a great conversation but before we get into all the investment uh mantra you had a near death experience that left you almost paralyzed uh when i was doing my research on you and i want to know more about this experience and kind of how it changed your life First first of all, I think, thanks a lot, Brendan, for inviting me onto the podcast. It's a a great honor.
1: Um, This this incident was very interesting. So I think almost close to about 10 years ago, um, during one very fateful Christmas, I was having a a lot of drinks at a a beach club and heavily being intoxicated, uh, decided to do a somersault on the edge of a quite shallow swimming pool. And uh, when I did that, basically, you know, as you're intoxicated, uh, the somersault doesn't turn out as perfect as you would like. Uh, and the top of my head actually hit the bottom of the swimming pool. And I heard a loud snap sound. And as a result, what happens was that I broke my neck. Uh, how serious it was is uh, I broke my C1, which is um, basically we make out of the cervical spine. The first C1 actually burst into two. Um, and after that, what I did was had a halo vest in which there were basically four screws into my skull. Do a into my skull, and that helped me in place for about uh, about three to four months, and allowed the back of the that tool that survived the C one to actually join. It. So right now it is still open. I have actually still a broken neck, in which uh, the front part of my C one is still broken. And how serious it is is that um, if you actually if they actually hack you by um, you actually don't die of suffocation. You die because your C two, which is the one below your C one, actually presses against your spinal cord. And you died right away. And how serious was this? Is that uh, my my doctors are telling me, ninety nine percent of the guys who get what you got would have died, and uh, the ninety nine percent of them who have survived would probably be paralyzed in some form or another. So for me to be really be walking, um, you know, not not paralyzed at all, it is
0: a, a true you know true life miracle for this. That is, that's unbelievable. I mean, how that I mean that must change a lot of outlooks on life after you go through something like that and realize like, wow, like it could have been so incredibly different.
1: It, it is, it is. Um, I think one really, it makes really one reflect about the the fragility of life and really this importance of life, right? I think the ability that every day I got to do something meaningful that truly matters. I think that's really how, how you know, they just got me thinking, right? And I think someone said that as you live, you actually have, you're actually growing older, but you also have one day less to to live. And I think that's really how important I think about is is so precious, right? And I think that also allowed me to kind of think about what's my life mission in in life and I spent about three, four days uh, at a course thinking about that. And it's really to kind of excite, to inspire and to empower people to pursue their dreams um, and really to grow their businesses to create long-term, sustainable, positive value, by making the world and mankind a better future, so I think that's kind of how I want to kind of live uh, my my end state and what I want to do. Right? I think I was listening to this speech by uh, or this sharing by by Guy spear He said he asked, "What does a dead What does a dead man leave behind?" Uh, and the answer is nothing. You actually you know you actually leave everything behind, right? And I think that really is true because you're out here every day. You know we're all just trying to to give our, our own, in our own way, back, back, back to the world. And hopefully, in our own sense, we are just making the world a better place.
0: Yeah. And the other, the other thing it does whenever, you know, someone experiences an event like that, maybe not to that degree, but maybe some some form of that type of trauma is it puts everything in perspective. And, you know, we, we're, 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 we're in a market and we're going to talk stocks, but we're in a market that's down, you know, 30%. A lot of names are down way more than that. And at the end of the day, like if you step away from Twitter, if you step away from the noise, it's like, none of that really matters if you look far enough, you know, like the fact that you can walk and talk and, and move around with how that accident went down is like, that's the kind of stuff that matters. It's like, whatever happens in markets happens.
1: It is, it is truly. I mean, for example, just being able to wake up to see a sunrise, to see the sunset, just being able to walk, you no, know, mm-hmm. see the trees. Feel, feel the breeze, feel the warmth, you know, being able to kiss your loved ones, <laughs> just be, being able to have nice, simple, good food. I think that really just the simplest things in life. You don't really need ultimately a lot of material things because ultimately, you know, you, 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 you're leaving them all then behind. And, and that's how just uh, a simple life uh, that makes you fulfilling. I think that's, that's so important.
0: After the accident, you said that you rediscovered investing. So what, is that, what does that rediscovery mean? And then walk us through that, that, that process and that evolution of the investment philosophy.
1: It was very interesting. So I think after the accident, um, my wife actually told me, you know, you should do something with your life, right? And I think that got me sparked uh, a fair bit. So I, back then, I was actually working in the financial industry. So I was working having working for three years with City as a management associate, mm-hmm. Did credit cards marketing, insurance product marketing, then to FX uh, sales on, for covering corporates. And after that, I went to JP Morgan, was doing eight years there. Uh, and after a while, you know, you should do something with your life, right? So I figured out. You know, I used to have a passion for investing, you know I like equity research, but never really invested. And I thought you know, I know could be, I could do some good book with numbers and, and, and try to figure out something from there, right? So I went down the whole rabbit hole of investing and uh, attended a course to learn value investing um, and basically taught me how to find good companies and to invest. Uh, slightly different from the traditional net nets or, or the Ben Graham way, but really more, I think, more Charlie Munger uh, value investing f- from that aspect, right? try to find great companies and not overpay and try to hold them for a for very long term. A very interesting aspect when I went through that was this company. So I think I went through the whole process and I realized hmm, something, something must be quite wrong because they're trying to find or pay good prices. Right? So a very good example of a company they actually recommended and uh, and, and that cost, that the 3-day cost this company called Viacom. Viacom is a company that is in Singapore uh, that's actually doing car inspection services. So every car in Singapore, you're mandated to do an annual car inspection service. Hmm. Uh, And about two companies in Singapore that does a lot of it. So you think about it, it's a duopoly and it's actually mandated by regulations that you have to do it. So year in year out, they actually keep increasing prices. The the company actually makes net income margins of 40%, right? Um, And uh, net revenue growth was growing very rapidly because we had released our car vehicle population and and cars went through the roof. But subsequently in Singapore, we actually control our car population through what we call COEs or Certificate of Entitlement. So right now in Singapore, you have to pay 100k or about maybe 70,000 US dollars before you can drive a car for 10 years. That's how expensive is it to drive a car in, in, in Singapore. So, so, that, that company are eventually, eventually their revenue growth rates probably are now growing at single digits, 3 to 5%. Mm-hmm. When I looked at that company, right, you know, it's great, the net income margins are great, and, but it runs very, very low cost because there's nothing much they can keep improving net income margins because it is what it is. And, and it was trading at a cheap PE between, you know, about 12 or 13 max, right? So, which is fairly cheap, right? So, fits that kind of mode. And after a while, you ask yourself if the company grows top line, you know, realistically at 5%. And if profit net income margins stay the same, earnings is going to grow at 5%, they might pay a dividend out of that and stuff. Mm -hmm. But if the valuation multiples stay the same, the stock price is going to rise by 5% every year. That went me down a whole rabbit hole, oh, okay. I can think about earnings growth, of revenue growth driving to translating the earnings growth and earnings growth translating the valuation multiples, right? And that something just got me, eh, something is wrong. Because if I'm buying this company, yes, it's great, but I'm probably going to earn five to ten percent. Uh, over the long term, depending on where multiples trade at any one point in After a while, I realized, oh, okay, can I do better than this? So I started searching the whole of Asia, went down to the whole rabbit hole, looked through the whole of Asia, and I couldn't find the companies that wanted to grow, say, you know, we were able to grow 20% Kegel for the last three to five years and we were having good. Good net income margins and little debt and I had large addressable markets, I couldn't find any of them. And then when I went to the US, oh my God, <laughs> I, I, I was mind blown because there were so many great companies, uh, you know, Amazon, Facebook, Netflix, right, Visa, Mastercard, and I was like, wow, I, I'm in paradise. And that just got me, that really swung, swung me all the way like from value investing or you know, to what some, some might say, growth investing. And and when I and, and that just went through you know to, to, totally all all the other way. And now I think that simple example of a company makes me think a lot about how revenue growth is, earnings growth, and just versus um you know uh, valuation multiples. And that's that just got me sparked. And I think attending um also signed up for the Mod and, and David Gardner was a huge inspiration, and I think that really his favorite, his, his single favorite statement that I really is to make your portfolio reflect your best vision of the future, hmm. and I think that's a great influence and in, and in, in, in what what we do what we do as well, you know, and in, 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 in my single every day of of my investing, and that really got me just down this whole whole rabbit hole.
0: What were some of the first investments or companies that you either studied or invested in when you made that switch, right, from trying to find these, you know? value grow, you know, five, six, seven percent to then mm. these growth machines. Like what were what, what were some of the names that originally interested interested you? This could be in the US or Asia or wherever in the world.
1: Mm. I think I started off looking at uh, uh Facebook. I think when I went all the way from Asia to to, to the US, I think the first few companies that, that just sparked out on a new was like, oh look look at Facebook. Facebook was growing very fast. So this was back in almost 2017. I think at that time, Facebook's grew were growing at about north of 40%, uh, you know, net income margins were solidly, you know, I think 20 plus 30%, uh, free cash flow margins were also around there. I was like, okay, wow, this is great. And at that time, Facebook's um, PE was probably still expensive, maybe about 23 times. And I think if you do some simple math, right, like this, if their revenue growth at that point of time, or well, you see, you know, earnings growth because of operating leverage could grow at 50%, right? If it grows at fifty percent, if the rule is only two, so about over what every one and a half years, um, you know, re- revenues uh, or earnings probably double. That twenty-three x, if earnings double and the valuation multiples get compressed, the twenty-three x actually become 11, almost twelve x, right? So if you think about it, if the valuation multiple stays at twenty-three, your stock price have to grow sixty percent KGA per year, and if valuations come off, I know roughly Facebook can return. 20-25%, 30% Go over three to five years. And that became very apparent if I think that the revenue growth could start for a long time. And that Facebook was actually one of my very first investments. And then I went through the same methodology, came across Alphabet did um, Netflix. Uh, the Visa MasterCard was, was also very apparent because Visa MasterCard, you know, they're, they're also growing revenue top lines, 15, 20, 20 25%. Right. And, 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 and the earnings, you know, probably are growing 15, 25, 25%, right? Mm-hmm. So even, so you can expect the kind of take returns as well. So that was just how I, I thought about it and, 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 and went through those.
0: Well, Facebook's a, actually a, a great example, um, kind of a great segue into the discussion on just thinking about time and, 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 and growth. And because, you know, these these things don't move in this nice linear fashion, right? It's like, yes, earnings can grow, net income can grow, revenues can grow exponentially, but the stock doesn't have to necessarily translate to what that's doing. And I think Facebook's a great example, right? So like, you know, since going back to 2017, right? It was at $150, $151 a share. And today it's at $161, like $164. So it's grown 8% in five years, but yet, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's business has, has done exceptionally well. And so then how do you how do you then kind of reconcile those two things, right? Because from one perspective, if you just focus on the business, it doesn't really matter. And then you could say like, oh, well, you know, Microsoft went nowhere for 10 years, and then all of a sudden it just exploded. So how, how then does that work into your process of you're seeing the business improve, um, but it's not reflected in the stock price? I mean, like Facebook today is... It's like, I think less than 15 times earnings or something. It's, at this point, it's a value stock.
1: <laughs> it is, it is. I think the way to think about it is really the durability of the growth, right? Um, I think when, when I looked at it in, in back then in Facebook, a lot of that growth wasn't pricing growth. A lot of the growth was just organic growth, right? Had more customers coming in, more ads wanting to spend more money um, doing all of that. And I think the last couple of years, that a lot of that mix of that growth shifted a lot more into pricing growth. Facebook became more expensive. And of course, after after Apple, which um, you know, with with their, their change in in, in, the, in the privacy, affected negative, negatively affected Facebook by a fair, by a fair bit, right? And and one who had invested back in 2017, 2018 could never have phantom all this. And, and that's why sometimes you can never be hundred percent sure that something will happen. I think the way to think about it is that the market's outlook of Facebook is, is, is incredibly, I would say, hazy right now, right? You have a business that is fairly profitable, but it's experiencing some headwinds, and it's and it's clear, right? You cannot keep having pricing growth with very low-digit, uh, you know, um, organic, organic growth from that, from that perspective, right? You can't, you can't just keep increasing prices. At some stage, uh, you, you know, customers are going to leave, right? And your efficacy has decreased. Um, they are going through this whole change in, Media to reels and reels will take time to monetize, right? From feed from stories, which monetization took also some time, time some time. reels will similarly take time. So it will affect, uh, you know, the profitability of, of the business. And I suspect you go through this couple of quarters now. Facebook has turned from desktop to mobile, mobile to feed, feed to to stories, right? And and this is not new, right? And they have a very, they have a very big team and 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 Mark, Mark Zuckerberg obviously has played a a fundamental role with, with very, very good leaders, you know, like, like uh, they, they support him, so supported him along the way, right? So I think it remains to be seen, right? And a company that is still growing is not decelerating rapidly or is not saying, you know, not growing, right? I think I'll still continue to, I'm still calling to whole Facebook, but am I, is it of high conviction for me? Not really, because it is experienced on some headwinds, and the hearings is unclear, right? They have a very strong uh, footwork in in I would say the VR and AR segment with Oculus is probably had about you know north of 80 percent market share, especially in the last year or so. But it, it it is not it's not extremely clear because I think in the current shape the current shape and form on on VR and AR, I don't think it remains to be seen. And Apple you know could be a very legit contender that comes up to it. So I mean, it is a bit murkier, but the business is you know so far still okay. I think it's too profitable, but I guess it's the growth, right? And the growth, it, it is affecting. And as you said, yeah. Variations. Facebook,
0: is, Facebook is interesting because when the market kind of switched from valuing growth to valuing earnings, Facebook didn't get any of the benefit <laughs> from that switch like Facebook is cheap and it has a lot of earnings a lot of cash flow but the market still just didn't seem to care uh, but it makes me think about the kind of this larger question and we can dive into investment mm. philosophy here um, mm. you know when you when you made that switch from 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 value to growth it was almost perfectly timed right around that 2017 that's when um, you know the fund flows and the market just started betting up growth and anything with growth, whether it was top line, bottom line, anything at all, um, the market valued very, very highly. And so do you ever worry that your strategy um, is, is maybe more cyclical than you would think? And then how do you protect yourself from a portfolio construction perspective on maybe the cyclicality of you know high growth might not be in vogue for the next five to 10 years? And then what would that mean for this style of investing?
1: I think we have to kind of like really go back to it. Because if I recently did some studies as well, it was one of my articles that I recently wrote. In, in any short term, right? If you look at it on a one-year horizon, so just now I mentioned, you know, there are probably three, three um, contributors to shareholder, total shareholder returns, what we call ESR, revenue growth, or, or growth in profit margins, which is growth in earnings, multiplied by your change in valuation multiples, right? That gives you kind of like, exclude, let's exclude dividends to make it easier. Right. On any given year, the change in valuation multiples accounts for almost close to 60 to 70% of of, a stop, of, of total returns, because that's where the market comes in, expectations come in, that can change dramatically, right? And, and we have obviously seen it you know, from, from the middle of last year to, to right now. But if you extend that from one year to three years to five years to 10 years, that study basically had, there was this very study by, uh, if I remember, it was by Morgan Stanley, the top median quartile of companies over a 10 year horizon, almost close to 80% of a company's revenue, earnings, and free cash flows, the growth, accounted for that majority of the total shareholder returns, right? So I think the question is, is that which game are we playing? Are we playing a short game, which is up to one year, two years even, or are you playing that longer game that I have, right? If I know a company, for example, is going to grow 25% earnings very durably over the next 10 years, if the valuation multiples are not Excel, right? I think they're not ridiculous, right? not 100, not a 1000x or, or something, right? right? right. I would probably, even with the valuation multiples come off, I would probably get less than 25% of, of the, the returns. And you know, I might get 15%, I might get 20%, depending on any given year on where the valuation multiples exit. Mm. But I will get I will get a large part of that growth. And I think that's how one, one, one way can, can, can looks at it. I think so you really try to think about that cyclicality. And not every company is, is, is cyclical, right? For me, for example, I try to avoid cyclicals because I I'm just very, very bad at timing market. And when you invest in single companies, you have to kind of buy low, sell high, and try to time where the markets are and and do all that. And I'm horrible, absolutely horrible at market timing. And I don't think I managed to find any single investor who can successfully time. The market is completely buying low and selling high every single time. And I don't have proof of that. So if I know even the best guys can't do it, I am probably likely unlikely to do it, right? So I played a longer game in which I know... um, that, that short-term volatility is going to kick into me and I'm not going to get, I might not get what it is, but I will get the intrinsic returns of, of that portfolio. right? And just to give you some point in terms of how I'm thinking about things right now, right? When prices are at all-time low, what happens is that your prospective returns are at all-time highs, and your risk is actually at very, very low. But when prices are actually high, the prospective returns are probably going to look very, very poor, and your risk is actually very, very high. So right now, for example, a lot of the companies and if you look at growth, look at tech, right? valuation multiples are at probably at historic lows. So what's the worst thing right now, they are at historic lows, even if valuations don't go up, you're probably likely going to get you know, the business performance easily right so if a company is growing still growing earnings 25% kega you're going to get 25% kega returns in the mm-hmm. in the stock price right i'm not even con- con- i'm not even considering dilution and if valuation multiples do revalue upwards you're going to get an extra kicker. and that's how i, I think about it right? and, and to be honest i would say forward irs are looking even more attractive than than than, than ever because multiples are just at all time lows they definitely look much more attractive now than than than, than the middle of
0: last year 20%. yeah yeah no 100% but i guess one of the one of the questions, right? The fundamental question in that is, is the premise that one can reasonably estimate earnings growth over the next five to 10 years. And I think, I think there's a clear difference between trying to model out the earnings growth for something like mm-hmm. Coca-Cola or some durable mature business, but in, in the high growth tech area, right, where both, you know, you and I invest, um, the Question lies in like, okay, like how well can you predict or guess where earnings are going to be in five to 10 years? And then what's that cater look like? And then what's your confidence in that? Just because there's so many exogenous variables with these younger companies that often lose money. So, how do you then try to forecast earnings growth over time while also? remaining cognizant of, of all of the factors that play in, which, which, which would negatively affect any confidence level that you have in those estimates.
1: I think that's a great question. Uh, I think the way to think about earnings and revenue growth is to ultimately go back to the business model. Right. Mm-hmm. Try to understand it is, uh, is, is the, is the TAM large enough is, is the business, is the technology scalable enough, right? Are they able to, to grow? Are they, can they reasonably, is there operating leverage in the business? Right. Can they still expand margins or margins are probably at, at the top side? right? And if they're op- expanding operating leverage, where is that going to come from? Is it going to come from R&D, GNA, you know, and general, a general enemy expenses? Is it going to come from sales and marketing expenses? I think we've got to think about that overall, like what are the unique economics of the business? Is the, is the company growing? For example, right, if you have a SaaS company and the net retention ratios are 160%, right? and they have been 160% for the last three years, if you look if you look at if you look at the underlying contracts at which the customers sign, they sign three, three two to three year contract terms. I would say durably, very, you know, even if the company doesn't add new customers, um, the revenue growth is gonna be 60%, right? Which is which is the net dollar retention. Yeah. If they add some more customers, the con- the, the company is probably gonna grow you know, 180, I mean 80, 90 yep. percent, right? For, from their perspective. So I think we got to go back into that business itself, right? For example, if a SaaS company is more usage based, right, that would be harder to predict, with much lower lower predictability. Like if you look at a Twilio, for example, which is more usage based, right, versus a Snowflake where you sign long term contracts, or versus right. a penalty where you sign long, very very long term contracts, right, and you and and these are all, for example, mission critical, right? I'm not saying a Twilio is not mission critical, but the guys really need these to, to to do all the stuff that you need to do. So I think if you focus on some of the more mission critical ones, the ones that the underlying customers are signing a lot, and if you look at just that historic net dollar retention, in which companies are spending more, you can get a higher probability, and a sense, that that durability of that growth can actually last longer. Right. You're not gonna you're not gonna get it right all the time, right? I think, I I think we leave we have to leave sufficient buffers, and that's why you know for example I I don't take concentrated positions I don't do you know five stocks ten stocks because that is my margin of error and I can get it wrong and i have gotten it wrong and and Mm -hmm. and it's perfectly fine in this business you have to be able to you know get it wrong sometimes but I think it's it's really the upside right and and finding the multi-baggers that that really drive that whole you know the the whole process of 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 investing
0: well it's that it's that bifurcation between what what is mission critical and what's and what's just discretionary. And I think that's where, because I spend a lot of time looking at consumer facing businesses, um, you know, whether it's not, you know, non-software or, or, or software based consumer businesses, it's, it's trying to judge, um, to my best knowledge, like how mission critical is this. What looks like to be a discretionary purchase, which is what I think a lot of companies are going to realize, or investors are going to realize about certain companies over these next twelve to eighteen months. It's it's okay. How how mission critical is something like a Netflix subscription, right? Like how like how mission critical is that? Like do you need Netflix, Hulu, Stars, HBO? Like how how mission critical is all of that? How you know how mission critical is the Peloton, for instance, right? Like price drove narrative there. Every, when when peloton was hitting all-time highs people were saying like oh this is this is not just you know a glorified closet hang- or you know like you know hanger for your clothes but now you're seeing like covid uh, went down and all of a sudden people started getting back outside they started joining gyms they started riding bikes outside and it's like well okay maybe maybe it's not as mission critical as i thought to somebody's fitness um and that's that's where i tend to get into trouble right because it's easy to well easy in air quotes but Take something like an Elastic uh, software, which I don't own, but it's one of those things where it's like you can reasonably say, okay, more data is going to be generated in the next year than the year before. People are going to want ways to search and analyze and scrub that data. And Elastic does a really good job at doing that in a bottoms up way that benefits developers. And it's like, that's a pretty easy one to see. It's mission critical. For these consumer ones, it's not, it's not as easy.
1: You brought a very interesting point on, on consumer. So to give an example, maybe Netflix versus Spotify. Right. Yep. I, I have Netflix and I don't think I would ever not have net, ha, ha, sorry. I mean, I, I have Spotify, I have both of them and I just give an example of Spotify. Right? Yeah. I like, don't think I will ever unsubscribe Spotify because it's all my favorites and all my playlists is all right. my likes and it's just so easy. Right. I, I don't want to go back to an age and an era. I wish I have to download music onto my device. to put it into a playlist, spend lots of hours on it, and now, you know, at the touch of a button, I put in the name of the song Mm -hmm. and I can play, right? I think that's that's where I think, for example, even a B2C subscription can be extremely mission critical. And that also explains why, you know, for example, Spotify's churn is extremely low, right? the, The customer churn. And even if you look at I mean Peloton is also another example where the customer churn is also extremely low because of just of the passion and, and, and the customers really love it, right? Even Netflix churn is surprisingly very, very low versus even you compare like Apple Hulu or even Disney, right? I, I mean if I I have you had Apple TV, I have had um I have I mean I'm still a prime and I I've I had Disney Plus and I've unsubscribed Disney Plus and Apple TV because mm-hmm. I find just much more content on, on Netflix and I, I don't think I can ever finish watching any of the content that I want to watch in Netflix in my entire life, which is just absolutely insane. Uh, and, and, and that's how I, I think about it. I mean, until Netflix becomes $100, <laughs> where you have to pay a month, I think, I think it comes to a, a certain price where there is still a certain price where they can keep increasing prices. I, I guess the question, how much they can keep increasing prices depends, right? Like for example, in the US. pay what 70 80 dollars you know per month of subscription but that includes sports if you take out sports you probably you know pay maybe 40 50 dollars right i think the street spot is you know they can probably keep increasing prices 30 plus 40 plus but you know i think if they hit towards 50 it's going to be a a problem right and i think that Mm -hmm. people are starting to make that bigger shift right but at 20 plus dollars i mean i i think it's still a pretty much no-brainer that people are going to get netflix right and the amount of deliver the amount of value that they keep delivering. So and, and it's no surprise why their churn is actually been been not as high. But of course their churn has been a bit higher if this because they acquired a fab, a lot of customers who want to watch street games uh, during COVID and, mm-hmm. and all that stuff. Right. And of course that churn you know does happen and we we see that. But I think it's just, just that normalization of the churn.
0: Yeah. That's actually a fascinating idea to think about price as like this weighting mechanism for switching costs. Right. So when I was in when I was in grade school we I feel like everybody made like that bridge out of balsa wood and you had to see how, how, how much, how much weight your bridge could hold. And I kind of view like consumer choice as that bridge. Right. And then, and then the weight is whatever functioning mechanism will determine the switching costs. And so for Netflix, like you brought it up, like how much, how much pricing power do they have before the price becomes so heavy where the consumer goes, Oh wait, For like five to ten dollars more, I could get a thousand channels with all the sports that I want, with all the stuff that I need. And with, you know, with the price I'm paying now, I'm only getting Netflix. Um, And so that's, that's like an interesting thought experiment. And then you mentioned Spotify, and I, I share your, I share your sentiment. Now I own, I own a little bit of Spotify, but like I don't think I'll ever delete it just because of how personalized it's become to me. And you and you you brought it up perfectly like if I were to switch to Apple Music or Pandora, it just wouldn't be the same because I have I think five or four four or five years of data of songs played, and Spotify knows my taste. They know what music I'll like even before I discover the artist, which is just mind-boggling. Um, but then like a question, a question I have for you is as technology gets better and as more data just becomes more prevalent how hard would it be for a competing company to scale up to that data advantage where it's, where the, where the new, in, you know, the new startup would have just enough data to make you interested in the personalization because everybody claims that they've got this algorithm that makes it personalized and it's, you know, the network effects of having more data and it's just this greater and greater increase in returns to scale. But if, if technology keeps getting better, Like, what would the world look like if a new startup could just come in and port over, like, you know, a bunch of data that they have on you and all of a sudden it's like their offer is almost as good as this one and it's 50% cheaper.
1: I think that's a good point. I think that could happen. I I won't rule out the possibility, but it will take time. And I think it's not something that will happen overnight. It will will take probably months and years and and we will come come to that realization, right? But I think... Um, the companies that have their data advantage have the competitive advantage. You know, provides inherently this high switching cost, of, of you trying to switch out because of just of, of, of their whole preference. And I, the way to think about it, sometimes, sometimes I think about it as Spotify almost having an un, or an infinite LTV yeah. <laughs> versus 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 because it, I'm probably going to be a lifetime subscriber right unless they really screw it up right or yeah. uh, not 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 keep delivering the value giving giving more giving you know, more stuff and I, and I and i think pricing is too cheap because they have not actually increased prices at, at all compared to netflix just imagine spotify's increased prices 10 every year you know you're paying 12 dollars, it becomes 13 dollars, it becomes 14 15 you know what i mean they can constantly do that and have have revenue growth of 30 percent over a long time 25 30 for a long time right and you probably still won't feel a pinch Right, So, I mean, I, I, to your I, answer, I think, you know, you can have companies that come in, it will take time, but, but I think they will know and they can probably can re, can react, right? I think that's, that's still the mode.
0: You mentioned in, um, I don't know if it was a podcast of yours or in a blog post, but there's six traits that you look for if you if you kind of want to break it down into into a formula and it's you know it's stuff that everybody knows but strong sustainable moat competitive advantage innovation profitability and operating leverage strong financials and solid management and i you know i like i like this kind of six part framework anytime i can quantify some of these qualitative things. Um, can you walk us through an example of maybe a recent investment um, outside of the ones that we've discussed? I know I know you've mm-hmm. brought up Netflix mm-hmm. and Facebook and you know, obviously Facebook hits on a lot of these, but maybe an investment that, that most people might not know or a recent one that you're really excited about and then walk us through that six-part framework.
1: Sure, sure sounds good. I think one of the recent um, investments uh, that I've invested is called d So d was a Uruguayan payment fintech startup that was recently listed on the Nasdaq uh, in June of last year. I think of d as like the at-end or more specifically like the, or slash strike equivalent not for developed market payments but for emerging market payments. So Adyen on Stripe basically does an API that links up to, that makes e-commerce easier to so, write. If, if, if you want to sell a business, you want to make a customer to, to, make, to make payments, they allow you to pay via credit cards or debit or credit cards via, via Adyen which pipes the, the API to, to, to the company that does it on, on right. their websites. What DLocal does is DLocal really focuses on emerging market payments and they focus on three different things. One which is pay-ins, Pay out and marketplace. When I, mean, I give you an example of pay-ins, right? So for example, when you think of, of Spotify wanting to expand into Brazil, and Spotify wants to expand to Brazil, in Brazil it's com- cumbersome with a lot of emerging market payments, then you know, set up a whole entire payments team in Brazil to make sure that they can collect. Now, it, first things most Spotify, most collect, most people got in terms of subscription, they will do debit and credit cards. But you look at Brazil, about 10% of the population only has debit or credit cards majority of the population has local payments and is and it's the same thing in emerging markets. Mm-hmm. If you want to have, you only limit only your payment, debit credit cards, you only have 10% of, of, of the time, right? Now what they do is that they expand to emerging market payments. So you can pay by PICs and which, which for example, local supports and everything. And, and when, what they do is that all these customers pay in BRL, you know, to, to, to Delocal. Delocal basically pipes that and pays out basically, for example, maybe, maybe euros back to Spotify. From the anchor and handles that handles the entire thing via one single API. So now, when Spotify goes to every single country, they don't need to expand very fast. They just need to tell the local, "You are in this country. Let's pipe it up. Let's pipe it up. Let's offer local payments, which is the methods that you, that you have." So as a result, it helps a lot of the fast-growing companies that are expanding in all the emerging market payments to grow even faster to make to make them have this ease of payments. Now, this this infrastructure itself is extremely extremely difficult to, to make. I, I, I came from a world of FX where I spent almost eleven years and, and really focused on emerging markets, right? And in emerging markets, because of capital controls, the infrastructure is extremely hard to build. It's not like in in the US or in Europe where you don't know send dollars to and fro. It's extremely easy to make that whole entire entire pipe takes years to build. But once it's, once it's built, you have a very strategic goal. You have to get the licenses and stuff, right? And I think that's really the competitive um, advantage and the moat of the local. And if d customers are mostly um, similar to what at the end, which is a lot of large enterprises, their customers are the Netflix, the Spotify, is the Shopify, is Amazon, <laughs> you know, like the huge companies, right? Even Microsoft, Uber and, and stuff, All right? And just to go through a bit, uh, the three examples, which is the other one was payouts. So for example, uh, d can have a Uber customer or a driver using that and they need to be driving in Brazil. They want to get paid out in BRL. They also get paid out of that. And they also can support marketplaces like like Amazon, for example, and not say in Brazil, but maybe some other country, uh, you know, where they're collecting locally from the from the buyers in local currency, and then, for example, they are sellers also, also are locally. and They pay back that same uh, local currency to to, to, the, to the respective guys as well, so they can support it by three ways. Now, why d local? De local is growing extremely fast, right? Um, if I look at it, for example, their late their their latest um, the latest earnings. The financial 21, they're probably growing at 193%. You look at it, their first queue, they're probably growing about if I remember, it was about north of 80, 90 percent. So they're growing extremely, extremely fast, right? Mm-hmm. But what happens though so is that they're growing so fast it's not because it's because the net retention rates, the net revenue retention rates are 190%. So which That's means and, and and it's because the customers themselves, right? Like, like some, you know, like you know, have some of these large companies that are expanding in all these countries, they're just expanding so fast, right? You go in there, they're expanding. Very rapid growth. And as a result, DLocal has that rapid uh, you know TPV TB TP, uh, total you know, uh, transaction payment growth, right? Like that just kicks through, right, in terms of the volume, right? And you're also growing this larger share of the customer's wallet. They're getting more products, more countries, more payment methods. So you just look at this very simple thing, that's why you get like an insanely high net revenue re- you know, retention. And for example, the management thinks that 190% is very, very high. Probably yep. my base rate of, of high is probably 150 to 150%, which is insanely wow, well, right? Yep. Which means if you think about it, okay, yeah, the company might not grow at a 90%. And even and you see a new customers coming in, it might take time to ramp up, which typically takes about a couple know, a couple of quarters, about to two, two, to four quarters, depending on that. You know, gro- revenue growth rates are probably going to be 70, 80% for a long term, right? And as they keep expanding in so many of these countries, right? So so I, I can see the top line being being that and they're solving a real real problem, right? It's helping all these customers grow, right? For example, their, their net income margins are 27%. Their, yeah. their free cash flow margins are, are also around, around that, right? And if you look think about it, how many, the best combination of, 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 of the best investments I've always had are the ones who grow rapidly, very, very fast, and are very, very profitable. They have no debt cash, 267 you know, million strong balance sheet. Um, Right now, it's still a Latin America play, about about 80% plus of the revenues are still from you know, Brazil, Mexico, Argentina. But they're spending rapidly, expanding Asia, Africa. And that's where they're growing even very fast. Now, I, li- I like insider ownership as well. I like strong management and insider ownership. Do you know that Local never actually raised a single VC round until the very last round, which they raised from General Atlantic because they were bootstrapped all the way 100%.
0: That's pretty straight. So, just,
1: just before their, 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 their IPO, they, they needed you know, someone, a VC to be in, right? So, they, they actually got General Atlantic, who actually funded uh, at the end as well. Uh, and they wanted to get someone who was familiar with that space. So, they General Atlantic the final round, and then they went IPO. So theoretically, they actually didn't need the, the amount, amount of money and wow. a lot, all, their, all their, their co-founders actually own about 50% of the business because they were bootstrapped, right? And yeah. the, the CEO, which is um, Sebastian Karnovic, which is, which is about 30 years old, owns about close to about 5% of the business. So it, it is that's extremely wild right? because you don't get that kind of bootstrap because they were meant to be profitable right from day one and they were very, very focused on, on being that, right? Um, that's what I really like. And, and if you look at the their very, very strong management, if you've seen, like for example, I think um, Patrick O'Shaughnessy recently uh, interviewed as well. Um, Sebastian, I highly recommend that, that podcast where where they, they, went, they went deep into, into the strengths of D-local. But I think management is very, very strong. Um, the the Glassdoor ratings aren't as high as I would like. Uh, they're only about 3.8 stars. Generally, I try to prefer you know, the companies to have about, not for four. They were about 4.1 stars early on. Uh, CEO approval ratings is about 71%, not the highest but I, I do really quite like what, what they are doing. But i seen some of the concerns are mostly, they're not, not paying them as much. <laughs> I think that's probably some of the concerns, right? Mm-hmm. So I think as, as I think as D-local is something that is really um, very, very fascinating because, for example, their take rates are, ad-in's take rates are about um, 23 basis points. And D-local's take rates are about uh, north of 2%, which is the most 12, 10 times, 12 times that of ad <laughs> So if you're comparable for every TPV that grow, right? locus should be valued 10 times more than at yen because, you know, for every single take rate, they make 10 times as more, That's right? So I think it, you've got to think about it that, that from that perspective, right? And, and it's just so super asymmetric because they are a disruptor, they are an enabler of, 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 of customers, and that's why they can they can keep going so strong and and underlying is just software right you pump through the pump through the profit margins goes through the company just makes 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 an insane insane lots of money
0: yeah and yes
1: it is very very expensive I, I love paying um, gross overvalued, valued but I the way I think about it is that. If the revenues can keep growing um, you know even even with the p multiple glide you can be extremely you you can get very very asymmetric returns and and, and the way how i always think about it in terms of my investing framework and philosophy is that I, we are really looking for multi baggers we're not looking for the for the companies that you know return one to two x we're the ones that are looking really you know say return five 10 50 100 x
0: mm-hmm.
1: yeah and i think it has that it has that growth um, growth growth way to, to really capture all of that so i think really running through all, all of that all of that principles and, and six principles of which we, we're, looking, we're looking for
0: so just so i understand is delocal almost like the google translate for currency like if i you know if i if i pay in if i'm from brazil and mm. i get a charge for my spotify i can pay spotify in my local currency and then it gets translated to whatever spotify wants to receive it in so it's like almost yep. like a google translate and then i guess they take what like two percent you said from each from from each of those transactions exactly because there's an fx angle in it as well
1: okay and when you do the fx they manage to capture the additional spread in addition to just you know simple dollar, dollar versus dollar or something that you have to pay as well. so that extra uh fx bit
0: which they capture as well the additional take 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 re- it contributes to that. Are you worried at all? Because this is th- this is one thing I, I always worry about when I think of take rates is hmm. on one hand, it's it's great to have a really high take rate and kind of the industry leading take rate, but it can also be a potential race to the bottom where like your take rate is kind of another competitor's opportunity where if your take rate's two percent, um, like I'm you know, studying a company now where they've got an industry leading take rate and it makes me wonder like, okay, like can like do they do they earn this take rate and can they earn this take rate over time? And what are the odds that it just becomes a race to the bottom in terms of take rate? So have you have you thought about that at all? No, no I think it's, it's a great question because I think in terms of take rates, right, it's important to think about the
1: competition because it's really very, very difficult to, to build a complete payments infrastructure in, in, in each country. And and the way you think about it is like at YIN and... and, and and uh, and they really. I mean, sorry, Atyen and uh, and Stripe, they're really fighting it out because they're fighting in the same space, right? Obviously, uh, you know, uh, Adyen is more enterprise, Stripe is more. I would say more SMEs, more more more, media, more and more startups, right? Mm-hmm. But because they compete in the space, that there are literally no, there literally no 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 big competitors in that space. And that's why they managed to manage to keep take, take rates high, right? But I think what they have more recently, take rates have come off and, they, and they've been distributing because they are just getting larger customers and with larger volumes. And they can still have that. I think the way to think about it is, I'm also thinking about growing absolute profit mm-hmm. also because take rates can come off and you can have skip, skilled economics share, share, right? Which is like how Nick describes. You can have lower take rates, which can still do fairly well, as well as the company's profits keep growing faster than, way faster than, than, than anything else, that can still continue to to be there. So I think I think about if you go back to the infrastructure, because they're solving such a hard problem, and for someone to come in and build a Latin business or a Latin American business of what they did, it will take three to five years, and, and by the time the local will be like superbly huge, right? Already, and, and yeah, they can try to compete, and, and there will be a whole and entire, entirely different space because it's not say something. It's not, it doesn't have low barriers to entry, let me put it that way. It has actually very high barriers to entry. And so I think that kind of protects that take a little bit more.
0: And I guess like the worst case scenario for this is in some world, if Bitcoin really takes off as a medium of exchange, and then I guess you wouldn't need someone like DLocal if people are exchanging Bitcoin to Bitcoin, right? Like that's kind of, I guess, the absolute worst case Bombed out scenario. Yeah.
1: No, I mean I think it's a good point because it, the, best, the best scenario would probably be uh everyone uses one cryptocurrency, right? Or we should we transact, right? And I think that's that's ideally that's going to be the case. But I think that the, the difficulty that we have is one, the, the FX angles, because we all paid in local currency. Central banks would not never want to give away their own currency because. They had they earn right from print, from printing currency. That's something that any central bank will never give away. Yeah, they would. The US, the the, the no, the, the US government would always want to print money because printing dollars gives gives them revenue. So they will not take away from that. And if they, and if, if that is endangered, they will put in place all sorts of regulations to not not allow that. Right now, the question is that can there be a one, one single driver like like Bitcoin? Bitcoin is unlikely going to be be it because it just costs too much and it's way too slow. Right? Can you have Ethereum or something else that, that does a little bit? Yes, but the um, you know you it is still quite slow, and it's and, and obviously you have you might have you know the, the the new layers which which will take time, and it's the problem with Web three. We can we can obviously you know, go 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 a lot into that, but yeah, it, it, it is it is not easy, right? You need to keep breaking that, right? And I think with de- with decentralized um, finances, uh, as once you build one layer because it's DeFi, you can't improve it. Literally have to build layers on top of it to improve the base layer. And as a result, that's why you have Ethereum that's better than, than uh than than Bitcoin. You know, you have Solana or, or that is also better than, than, than Ethereum and it's faster and cheaper, right? And and after a while, you might have something else that's better than Solana because everyone keeps trying to improve. Whereas if you go back to like the web tool you know, like Visa Master, it's something that you need to improve, they go actually down to the infrastructure and actually improve it. Mm-hmm. Right, And you, you need to make it faster They and more servers. It's not is you actually it, it can solve the underlying problem. Right? So, I mean, the way that's the way how I think about um, that payments, yes, it can be. But I think even that shift, right, for example, the war on cash, he has been happening for 20, 15, 20 years. Yeah, right? you have everybody moving to, to, to pay to electronic payments that takes time because payments and adoption it, it is not something that happens in one year. I think it happens over multi-decades, right? So if if we know, we get a sense, if we get that slowdown, we can always exit our, our investments. But that that is that is always a recurring risk. Um, I don't know the shape and form of it will happen, but it's definitely a, a valid point that you know that could be that could be a risk. And we just got to be what constantly on, on our toes and, and watching out for that.
0: You mentioned earlier that you're not super concentrated from a portfolio perspective. How many bets do you carry in your portfolio? Like at one time, is it, you know, 20 to 30, 30 to 50. And, and, you know, this is, this is, this is going to give us a good intro into the private side of the investments that you make too.
1: No, no, I think, I think the way, how I think about investing is, is this, right? I just want to just, just share a bit on, on the process, right? how I think about investing is it looks like this. What I'm trying to do is try to improve my probabilities of success in terms of winning. And when I win, I win big. So if you think about it on a, on a very simple chart in investing, if you buy a stock for one day, you'll probably be a, there's a, probably a 52% chance to make money. Now if you own something for about one year, you probably have a 70% chance of making money. You own something for 10 years, that increased to about 90%. You own something for 20 years, you are 100%. So I want to make sure that my game is, is right, correct, in the very first place. I'm playing a long-term game, which I know there's a very, very high chance that I won't lose money and I will probably make money. So I shift that right away to the very long game. And I'm playing that game when I know the, the probability is is is, 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 weight, is weight to my favor, right? And then what we try to do is really focus on asymmetric payoffs because the maximum a stock can go down is 100 percent the, but, the, but the but the but the maximum it can go up is really unlimited. And if you're focusing on multi-baggers, these multi-baggers really drive that returns. And what I want what I wanted to lead to is also. How different that style is, is that power laws really apply to public markets, right? Um, That's this very very favorite study study of mine that I really love is by um, Hedrick Bessenbinder. Um, He did a a study in 2020, I think in about 2017 as well. 2017 was that of the US, 2020 was that of basically worldwide. He looked at about 64,000 companies publicly listed and he found this the top 0.25% of all of the companies accounted for about 50% of the returns. The top 1%, about 600 plus companies accounted for 80% of the returns, in which a very small minority of stocks really make up that majority of the returns. So we really gotta be focused on finding those companies that really focus. I'm I'm not fishing for the entire big pond, I'm really fishing for this small pond, for some of these companies that have basically are really looking for this, right? And our portfolio, we are really looking for this. So, so to give you an example, right, my portfolio has about, uh, on, on the public side, has about 73 investments, but yet power laws actually drive them. So to give you an example, at the end of last year when I wrote my, my, my first investor letter, um, the top 20 positions accounted for about 70% of the portfolio, top 30, 80, top 40, it was 90% of the portfolio. So, so about the 90% of, of my overall portfolio was for about 40 positions. But to give you an example of how big the winners were, right, my single biggest winner was more than 3x all of the losses of all my losers combined, the gains from my biggest winner. Right. Right. And and that really creates the whole entire alpha where, where, where suddenly your winners will, will, will just overwhelm that whole position. So I might have a lot of positions. So it's almost almost venture-like in terms of how I invest.
0: Yeah, that's what I
1: was like. Yeah, where the power loss really come, right? So if I put that, for example, like the 10 biggest winners, the combined the combined gains from that was more than. 10 times all of the losses combined. So really those 10, 15 bigger winners, right? We just contribute all of that returns, which is almost like, you know, the 20, 20% of, of, of the portfolio.
0: Yeah. And when you think about your portfolio, because I know you have a private, you know, there's like the, the mm. private investments you make, the, the pre-seed, seed companies, then your public companies. Do you think about that holistically as one portfolio or do you distinguish between the two? Like I've got my public portfolio, which I'm going to, you know, cap it some random, we'll call it 75 stocks. And then I've got my private investments, which I'll cap at X amount. And like, do you, you know, do you treat it the same differently? And then if so, why?
1: I, I treat it differently because they're all totally different written uh, and, and risk characteristics, right? I think the public space, um, if you choose your stocks correctly, um, you know, barring now <laughs> uh, the chance of it going to zero is very, very unlikely, right? Uh, but but in, in the private space, I would say the vast majority of your investments at the very early stage, if you're playing the early stage game, are going to go to zero. If you're doing seed, pre-seed, seven out of 10 are going to go to zero, right? So just by that nature, I, my the portfolio in, in, in my, in my, in my uh, private side is also a lot smaller. Because I cannot be investing you know, at, at the same size that I'm playing on the public, on the public space. Right. On like for example, I think on the public space, I generally try to I'm trying, I'm trying to actually look towards a sweet spot of about 50 to 60 companies. I think that's where my sweet spot is. Mm-hmm. trying to keep and try to really bring down that portfolio. On the, on the private side, there's really no cap. I think it's really what's exciting. So right now on the private side, I have about 73 um, investments. Uh done ex- exited two already, but so now I'm back to 71. Um I've just been, i been, I think the last year or so, I've just been more focused and trying to find really like the ones that can um, do much better and just taking slightly larger larger size tickets got versus it. that, right? Yeah. So I think that's really how you got to think about it. And and power loss too also drive venture capital returns, right? I think you gotta, you have to take a lot of bets. You cannot take a concentrated portfolio. I've never seen, I've seen very, very few, you know, maybe Athos Ventures before now, probably they are the only one I know that does a concentrated portfolio, but you, you power loss really drive venture capital returns mm-hmm. and if you miss out one of them you know you, you will not get the returns and I think that's how I, I really think about um, you know having could I have 100 200 private side you know could be but I'm hoping that I don't reach it too fast and'm just hopefully with setting a higher barrier um, that might you know not allow me to jump to that too so fast
0: right and one one way that I guess private markets have influenced, your public investing is just this idea of creating almost like a venture portfolio in public markets where you're taking smaller bets and letting power laws do the rest. What other lessons have you learned from analyzing private investments or pre-seed, seed seed stage businesses that have translated to maybe if there's any edges that you can take into public markets where at the seed stage, pre-seed stage, it's really you're trying to analyze the founder, right? And like, does this product have the potential to a become a huge market, or b, you know, have product market fit and maybe be this nice, nice little niche company? Um, so, like, what lessons there have you taken from these early stage businesses, and then translated to public public stage companies?
1: For me, actually, it's kind of like the reverse because I started on 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 the on on the public side, then going going to the private side. So I think on, on, the, on the public side, because we were using the same framework that we, that we discussed, right? going, to the, going actually to, to, to the private side actually employed the same, the same framework. So like for example, if I were to look at a, a private side deal, it would be really trying to figure out can, what is the business trying to do? You know, What are they trying to, to service or disrupt? Try to focus on the value creation, are they actually creating any value? You know, maybe the value is not being created immediately, maybe they're not making revenue, but can, can this ultimately be monetized? How durable and how sustainable can it be? Is it infinitely scalable? Because it is actually very hard to find a business that can be infinitely scalable, right? Uh, Is it disruptive? Is it really zero to one? I think that zero to one um, will eliminate a lot of of, of startups and and the one, and the the choice. And I'm very, very intentional when I'm doing, especially in, in, in the startup space, really trying to find that zero to one. Right. I'm not trying to find that 1 to 1.2, but I'm really trying to make something that it's really 0 to 1. Um, it's very similar to you know the public side. You know, so I'm really looking for multibaggers. I'm looking for unicorns. So if I'm doing pre-early stage, it has to be a 50 to 100x. But if I'm doing a, a series A where the, the risk has been significantly risked already from a C to, to series A, I might not be looking for 50. I might be looking for 30 to 50x, right? So that's how I kind of think about it because you need to have that Asymmetric return, and you need to look for that asymmetric return in order for that to return your portfolio, and I think that's that's extremely crucial. So if a company tells you, for example, I'm only I'm trying to do a tailor market in Singapore, right? I might do it online and do it measurement. Just like okay, uh, your whole manufacturing is going to be in Singapore. <laughs> you know, you're not going to dramatically grow that tremendously, right? You might right. have some AI and something, but that's going to be insane. So I think that almost, you know, kind of like rules out the investment, right? So I think this is how, how just the way really to try to just go back down down to those uh, principles and see, is that a, a unicorn potential investment, right? I mean, it's really just pushing that whole boundary and, and to see what's, what really is possible.
0: I love the zero to one framework, A, because I, I love the book and I love a lot of what Peter Thiel discusses and, like his, his, um, his YouTube lecture competition is for losers is one of the best lectures on business, um, that I've, that I've listened to. And it makes me wonder, like if people were to apply that zero to one framework, would these 15 minute grocery delivery apps or these like small little things, like would they ever get funded? Um, but then the problem becomes like when I, like I'll, I'll discuss this with Dan McMurtry, um, you know, super, super Magatu. And it's like these, these products that look like fads sometimes become mega businesses. And it's hard to determine at that moment if this is a zero to one or if this is a one to a 1.25. Um, because you could take a company like a Yeti cooler, which all they do is they make you know, insulated coolers and slap a logo on it and then market it like crazy. Like it's this awesome thing. And if you ask yourself, like, is this a zero to one product? No, it's not. Um, it's just a cooler with a brand on it. But then when you look at the returns that that company has been able to generate, like not saying that it's a great business or not, I'm just talking about from a pure return perspective, like day one versus where it is today is a, you know, big public company. Um, like that zero to one framework just didn't matter. Like you would still make so much money. And, and, and that's kind of that tie that I'm going like back and forth between. Cause it's like, man, if I would have known that you could just build a cooler slap a cool logo on it and then sell it for five times more than what anyone should pay for a cooler. Like, (laughs) obviously I would have invested. So it's, it's just, it's just tough. Cause like, if you draw a line in the sand, like I'm only going to invest in zero to one businesses, you might miss those seemingly like stupid looking fads that end up becoming multi-billion dollar companies.
1: This is such a, such a good point. Uh, but, uh, I, I think the way to really think about, about this is right. I think there are many ways to make money. And, and like you said, right, you could be investing in a cooler business and in, and it turns out to be a great B2C business and can make lots of money. Um, what, the philosophy of, of vision capital ventures, which where I do all my private ventures, is exactly the same as, as as vision capital, which is really to, you know, to to make our portfolio reflect the best vision of the future, changing and shaping the world for the better. And if like in, like the, the coolers do make people happier, by keeping the drinks cool, it's great. But it's it's just not uh, an incremental way of us making money, right? And there are so many ways to make money, and we prefer to make money from the way that us doing incremental. That is changing really and disrupting the world and i think that's that's how we, we we prefer to 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 not just make money for the sake of making money
0: mm-hmm.
1: but really making sick making money by, by 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 impacting and and i think that's that's really that that new that nuance and and of how i really really think 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 about it from, from that aspect right and i think you brought a very good idea because like Instacart, or, or for example, we have some, I've seen a lot of like specific local specific startups, for example, like trying to, you know, bring food from a farm to consumers. And then you, after a while, you think about it, oh, okay, they cannot really expand beyond a particular geography because they build the infrastructure from the farms to, to the consumers staying around there. So they can only keep doing that. And if yep. they build, if they expand to a new city, they have to do this to build an entire network and all over, it, all over again, right? Is it, like, is it infinitely scalable? Seemingly so, but if you go down deep 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 to the bottom of it, it is not, right? Um, that service that you you mentioned, right? You know, providing that quick service, it can be really great. And and that that to be honest to me is the most difficult is the most difficult bit. It's a platform that is seemingly um, you know, providing a very simple service, it can mm-hmm. be really disruptive, right? And to give an example, I've recently seen this startup, which is called Simply. Uh what it does yeah, is trying to do the Airbnb Airbnb of swimming pools, right? Yep. and I was like, yep. okay, you're trying to do the Airbnb of swimming pools. This sounds so familiar, right? It sounds so Airbnb, right? Now they're trying to rent out swimming pools first. You're like, okay. You need to ask yourself, after swimming pools, what else can they do? Can they do other things? And like, am I am I going to like miss it because I don't do it, right? <laughs> and the simple fact I missed it. I I I knew it could be, but I was like, this is so ridiculous and 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 loud they like to doing so many wonderful things, <laughs> expanding like so, so many verticals. Right? It yeah. is not. It is it is extremely difficult. it is, it is not easy at all. Mm-hmm. But sometimes you just got to you know tr- uh, you know tr- I was say tr- throw some capital at, at some of this and hopefully they, they turn out they turn out well. And one one of ones uh, I missed it at a stage and uh, I I've seen the risk a A, and I'm like. Mm. <laughs> Yeah, I, I sometimes I kick myself in the foot, right? But I but I think it's about going back there and trying to see what, what you can get right. And hopefully you try to get more right than, than you're wrong.
0: Yeah. And maybe the idea of the zero to one can still apply. And I've, I've, I've written about this before, but the idea that, you know, a cooler company doesn't sound like it's going from zero to one. But if you think about it in terms of like a social status symbol, um, because I know that that is what a lot of Yeti cooler, like if you've got a Yeti cooler in your boat or in your truck, like, It's just a different kind of thing. And so if you can take a product, a commodity product that was not used as a social status symbol, and turn it Mm -hmm. into something like that, I like maybe that does fall into the zero to one um, from 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 that angle. But um, I want to touch on selling and how you view selling versus a long term thesis. And the reason why I wanna I wanna ask this is because a lot of investing, um, a lot of poor investing, can be wrapped in this bow of oh I invest for the long term, right? So like you can be a terrible investor and tell people like oh like yeah I know I've been terrible over the last three to five years, but I'm playing you know this much longer game. And so like there's got to be a balance of both. And how do you how do you handle that where it's like look I know that I'm playing this different game the five to ten year game. However, I have to figure out how I can judge myself today and tomorrow and the next quarter based on these bets that I'm making.
1: I think, I think selling, selling is important, um, but it also becomes less important. And so, I mean, let me try to give you an example, right? So the way, the way how I think about investing is trying to do this, right? We try to find excellence, to buy excellence, to hold excellence and to add to excellence and to sell mediocrity. And I think that's the way, how, how, how I really invest in this. And, and, and the way to think about it is that your losers, because of power loss, eventually become less and less relevant. Right. Right, because they become so small. And some, I can tell you, some of my greatest losers are probably like 0.1%, 0.2% of, of my portfolio. Yeah. Um, it, the only bit is that it really takes time for me to track it because I spend a lot of time tracking it because every single company there, I right, I have a 30 to 50 page investment thesis, I keep updating every quarter, some of them are like now 150 pages, right? So if I have to keep tracking it, and it just pains me to just review those companies, I want to just exit them. And so I think about selling really tr- about three three ways in what I want to sell because generally, firstly, I'm investing money that I don't need for the next 10, 20 years. So I I, I would not be selling this because I need the money. So that, that's one to be very clear, right? Mm-hmm. So I think about three reasons to sell. The first one is I got it wrong. Simply, I just got it wrong, right? Um second one is the companies um, are declining fundam- the fundamentals are declining fast much faster than I had anticipated. And the third one is really better opportunities. I think the first one too is probably the ones that I tend to sell the most. The third one is the ones that I try to sell the least. and, and of my entire you know investment career so far, I've only probably done that only once uh, uh, back in about two years ago. Now I' try to get, try to give you an example of how when I got it wrong, right? One of the stock that I got it wrong was Wirecard. My own Wirecard uh, back in the 2017, 2018. It was going very, very rapidly, right? And I tried to understand the business. And I during the thesis, I brought up a lot of red flags. But actually, I had under kind of like put the red flags down and just not looked at it so much and just focused on the numbers because the numbers were just going so well. And then when the first FT article came out, then they, they highlighted all the stuff. And I went back and looked, oh my God, I actually, you know, not considered all of that red flags. I had actually all of them highlighted and I went through all the red flags again and I strayed away. The next day, I exited the entire position. I got it wrong because it was a fraud. I had red flags that was highlighted to me and I put it, and that was actually a very painful loss because it was the first one I had a loss of I think what 30 40%. Um, and, and it was painful, right? My very first one of maybe, and yeah. Um, I think more importantly, that taught me to be neutral. To, to not underestimate if something is down, just put a cross, put a red flag. I actually do that in all my thesis. I, I, I do not, and if it's, if it's doing well, there is a tick sign, it's automated from, from my standpoint. So I don't, there's no emotional element to say, oh, okay, maybe it's not, or I try to you know, minimize it, right? I think that's that's key. Declining fundamentals is tricky. Now it's tricky so because I try not to let one quarter of declining fundamentals te- tell me to sell right away because the very simple fact is that not every company is going to do well every single quarter there are some companies that are not going to do well every single quarter and you've got to give them that 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 space right it's is are they declining structurally and more and more permanently that is the question that you should be asking if it's not i will usually give them a couple of quarters to to run it through and i think that, that that is the most difficult so like to give you an example right one that is um been on my mind a long time, right? I, I like Twilio. Um, Twilio obviously has, has, has had rapid growth, but if you look at their organic growth, it's about 35%, right? Maybe the top line growth, including acquisitions, is north of 50%, right? But their gross profit margins have fallen from 60 to about 45%, right? Mm-hmm. And they want their long-term success. They, want, they, st- they have not demonstrated free cash flow profitability for a long, long time. They've been saying that they will go towards it, but they have not done it, right? And their long-term free cash flow margins, they are looking at about fifteen to twenty percent. I'm going to ask you a question. Um, the best in-class SaaS companies, right, like CrowdStrike, Datadog, you know, they have gross margins of eighty percent, and they get twenty to thirty percent free cash flow margins. Now, when you have forty-five percent free cash flow margins, how are you going on earth on a usage base says going to get fifteen percent? twenty percent free cash flow margins, right? Um yeah. it's been it's been it's been something that has really been on my mind and it's on my watch list to sell, for example, right? That is something that has been de- declining fundamentals for almost a year, right? Okay. A year, a year and a half, actually. I think that's that's where um it, it is the toughest is the toughest to make right the right the, the right call. Yep. But I think when the, the the revenue growth rates start to decelerate very quickly, you know that's probably that's probably it. Wrong. And I got, and I for example I had one example right, of declining fundamentals which we sold, which was like
0: mm-hmm.
1: ITE, which is kind of, kind of like a bit like the Netflix of China, but not not on, on user subscription, but they relies on on advertising. One the growth was falling off the cliff when when I mean, it was very fast when when we invest when I invested in it, but suddenly the growth just kept decelerating so fast. It was from like 100%, it decelerated to like 70 like to 30 to 10%. And you're like, what's going on in the business, right? And the next moment, they're starting to sell their content to other people. As as, as, a, as a video platform, as a streaming platform, your content is king. If yeah. you start to sell your content, you know, that's like, like red flags all over the place, right? And I think that was, that was it. It told me that something structurally is, is off. I exited the entire position, had, had a loss, but... And, and I think it never went back. And I think that those are some of the calls. And so far, at least, thankfully, the ones that we have exited because of this, uh, they have gone off to, to consistent, you know, um, not, not, not recovered. And I think that's that's, that's I would say a bit more. Um, the, really, the toughest one is better opportunities because what makes you think that something is, is a better opportunity? I, I, I reduced my position in Facebook um, in line Technology and in Arista about two years ago. And they had a great last year, right? Um, yeah. Uh, because in twenty twenty, some they were, they were suffering a little. On uh, yeah. hindsight, my positions were a bit larger because they, they they were you know they gained a lot of 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 that. But and for me, that was the toughest because they were in oversized positions because they you know they have grown over time. But I wanted to to take them to, to others. Um, that was a very tough call for me. Uh, so I generally try to focus more on like the first two when it comes to selling, and the third try to do as least as possible. I mean, my, my portfolio turnover is extremely low. Um, generally is about one to 2%. So, so the, yeah, so I don't, I, I don't have that at all. So it's almost near, so single digit, no single digits.
0: Got it. Yeah. You mentioned, you mentioned the line technologies. It's actually finally getting to a price that is interesting to me. Uh, I think it's at like 25 times earnings, which is a price mm-hmm. I never thought it would be. Um, mm. I just need like a line and then Dexcom to fall another 40%. Like if I always say that about Dexcom, I'm like, man, if Dexcom falls X percent, I'm just going to buy. And every time they do, I'm like, eh, it's still a little too expensive, but maybe one day I'll buck up and, and actually, actually buy the darn thing. Um, Eugene, this has been a sweet conversation and uh, I'm glad we were able to actually get through pretty much everything that I wanted to discuss. And, and, you know, I know I've taken up, over over an hour of your time, and I know it's getting late there in Singapore. Um, so I'm gonna I'm gonna ask you just kind of the final closing questions. Um, what industries or companies kind of excite you the most right now? If you could give one or two examples,
1: I think uh, if I try to share two two aspects. Right, I think um, on the public space, I think cloud, cybersecurity, software as, um, EVs. EVs is 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 really exciting because it is not. Um, a transition that is going to take place in years is really probably going to take place over twenty to forty years, so it's really that multi-decade shift. I suspect in twenty to forty years, probably every car on the road would be an EV, mm-hmm. um, just because countries have all mandated that we will move towards EVs. Right. Um. I like deep technology. I like space. I like you know, where SpaceX is going. Uh, with with the stuff. Um. On the on on the private side. Um. I like some materials, bi- biotech materials, some of them are really interesting me. But the one on the private side that really excites me is nuclear fusion. So just to give you a sense of what nuclear fusion is. right? Nuclear fusion is the joining of um, lighter atoms to create energy. So it's not nuclear fusion what we have. Right now we have this, the splitting of very heavy um, atoms like uranium to generate electric- electricity. The biggest challenge for us is really of the 21st century really is the need for abundant and clean energy. And I think nuclear fusion, if we can get it right, it really just has this potential to create an on-demand, something that's unlimited, abundant is from seawater, safe, clean, low cost, and really sustainable. Right? You want the world to have ESG and you, you want the world to decarbonize, if we can get nuclear fusion right, which is what the sun is, that clean energy we basically, you know, other than anything that we have on renewable energy, all energy literally will be will be nuclear fusion because it does not make sense to have anything burn on coal or gas and all of that. Now, the biggest challenge is, is it's not a slam dunk, right? I think nuclear fusion, we'll be trying to solve it for the longest time. And the biggest challenge that they have is that the energy output uh, is still not greater than the energy input. And if they, can, they I think that they're, they're getting closer to that um, than any ever ever since in the last decade and uh, I'm very optimistic if they can get it right um, that would truly truly revolutionize our entire we might not even need to go to Mars <laughs> <laughs> and, 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 and the world and the world will be dead clean right And I think you know maybe we will reverse global warming for the first time. Um, that's that's really some of my, 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 something that I'm really really excited if we can if the world we can really get get, get that right
0: Yeah. Awesome. And where can people go to find out more about you? Uh, I know you've written a book, so make sure you drop that, but uh, you know, your Twitter and basically any, anywhere people can contact you.
1: Yeah. Uh, I'm, I'm most frequent on, 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 active on Twitter. I, I share some of my daily thoughts on how I think about investing. I also write uh, also share earnings updates on, on, on every quarter on, on all, the, all of the earnings companies that we own. Um, I, I share a lot of trends, thoughts, uh, what I'm seeing as well. So I also share. I also write a fairly infrequent sub stack uh, where I try to make it more timely and about how I think about things and uh, you know that that can really last for a long time. So um, written the most recent piece, for example, that um, earnings is the one that truly drives um, stock returns, and it's a very good piece. And I highly recommend you know, for, for some of uh, long-term investors to really be, be looking at it. And of course, you know, feel free to reach out, DM me, um, uh, and, and 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 love to chat.
0: Awesome. And then the last question I ask every guest, if you could have dinner with one person from the past or the present, who would it be and why? I think
1: that would be David Gardner of the Motley Fool. Um, he has really such a deep influence in how I invest. He, he really thinks a lot about life investing in business because he came from a literature background and uh, he's such a rule breaker at heart, really just so different from, from, from where it is. And I think we always think about it, right? If, you, if we are going to be average, we, we, our returns are going to be average. And I think it's yep. only when we do something that is truly different, um, only, only then we will achieve different results. And I think mm. as much as we, we think some, some of us invest in similar approaches, um, the, vast, the unfortunate is the vast majority of, of the market does not you look at the institutional investors. Um, they definitely do not invest the way I, I do or maybe even the way, Brandon, the way you do, Brendan, right? And I think that's how different we are and, and that's how we regenerate we um, you know, that. that returns. And, and, and David is such, such a, a blessed soul. So, so I would love to, uh, to have dinner with him if the opportunity arises.
0: Awesome. Well, Eugene, this has been a great conversation. I am stoked to share it. Uh, I learned a lot. I know other people are going to learn a lot. Um, and make sure if you're listening and you want to you know, dive more into this, check out Eugene's book. I'll put a link in the show notes. So Eugene, thanks so much for coming on. Best of luck for the rest of the year.
1: Thank you so much, Brandon. It's really, a truly a pleasure.
0: This episode is brought to you by Ticker. Ticker.com is focused on bringing institutional-level investment research to you, the individual investor. Ticker.com is powered by S&P Global Capital IQ and has coverage of over 50,000 stocks globally with financial data, estimates, valuation metrics, ownership percentages, transcript filings, news, and more. Value Hive listeners can join Ticker's free beta trial today at Ticker.com forward slash hive. That's T I K R dot com forward slash hive.